Good to see you. Good to be here. So I'm not likely, I don't think, to talk very much about our pilgrimage trip. I posted a lot on the blog, and you can go and read that and see photographs. I may use some of it as illustrative material later on, but we went from all France to Santiago, and um, the one thing, somebody, Calista asked me at the happy hour last night to pull out one or two dominant memories. The first one, it was hot. It was very hot. And my plan to make a lot of money now that the preacher in the service said it's okay <laughs> is to start a, air, a carrier air conditioning franchise there. <laughs> but I, then I've been told that that maybe is not possible. That's against the law. So what did you go to, Holly? Where are you? Oh. I want to give you a huge thank you. I, not only were your talks outstanding, but the people that you got, uh, real thumbs up. Thank you. You're a gift to us. So this is my last class. Holly's taking over after. <laughs> nah. But we are going to do more, more teaching together. How are you doing? You doing okay? I, I was uh, pleased beyond words to see on Wayne and Callista's living room table, Jim Hollis is living the examined life. <laughs> and I'm sure that if I went into anybody's home in this class, I would see the same thing. Okay. All right, let's get with it. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So the title I have given this talk is The Most Important Teaching Jesus Never Gave. And I hope by the time I'm done, that title makes sense. Back in February of this year, I offered a teaching about, among other things, the icon that is known as the icon of Christ Pentocrator. Now, I had seen this icon many, many times before in um, churches where I've been in Turkey and Greece and other places, I even have photographs that I have taken of it, but I really didn't know much about this icon. Uh, until I read a book at the suggestion of Richard Rohr called Healing the Divide, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots. And since one of the things that I'm interested in is healing the divisions that are part of the church, the culture, our individual lives and all of that, I was um, interested in, in reading this book. You notice that Rohr wrote the afterword of this book, and it is... Um, it's a book of theology about the, the development of the early creed of non-duality in the Eastern Church. Uh, dualism developed in the West, and, and the Eastern Church didn't have it. And I, I'm not going to repeat that talk except to say a couple things. 
This is the earliest depiction of Jesus that we have. It comes from early in the 300s. I don't know what you know about iconography, but icons are, don't vary. They're copied from one to the other. So this is maybe knocking on the door of what the historic Jesus could have looked like. The climate conditions in Egypt where this icon were kept made it perfect to preserve this particular uh, piece of art. And second, as um, Smith points out in his book, the two sides of the face of the icon are different. One is more human and one is starker, or if, you, if that's, that's a word to use, but they're, they're, they're different. And so again, it's a, it's a metaphor for putting two together as, as one. And I commented at the time that this icon reminded me of Rembrandt's painting on the return of the prodigal, where the hands of the father embracing the, the prodigal are different. One is definitely feminine, and one is definitely masculine. This is not an accurate portrayal of that parable because the elder brother should have been out in the field pouting, but Rembrandt put him... <laughs> And I also read in that book about a piece of church jewelry that came from about that same part called the Ethiopian Cross, which I decided to wear. I wear it now every Sunday. It took me a while to trace this thing down. This is... Um, <laughs> well, it's not the one that Jesus wore, if that's what you mean. What Amos Smith says about this is a reason that he thinks it is a great, uh, it's from the same period, and, and no, this is a, a replica of it. What, what he thinks makes it non-dual is that it's very substantive, it's heavy, but you can see through it. And it's articulated, meaning that it bends, and so now I wear it every Sunday, I thought I would wear it over here. I don't normally wear this to the grocery store. I wear a T-shirt instead, but I'm not going to talk about that. And so ever since then, I've been showing this icon in class, at the beginning of class, every Sunday, and, and uh, I'm going to continue to do that. I think it's clear that the divisions in our world need healing, and in my own teaching, I want Jesus to be our guide as to how we can stand in our culture, with our culture, against our culture, and in service to our culture all at the same time. The fact that the teachings of Jesus are frequently not represented by the churches that claim to honor him is sometimes hard for people to see. Just as the word Islam has become for many associated with religiously fueled terrorism, the word Christian or Christianity has become for many associated with a conservative social and political agenda that is fueled by anger and fear, all in the name of God. So our culture, 
our individual egos are used to division. I would say that we're even addicted to it. And as is true with all addictions, this tendency to divide is fear-driven. Consequently, it's hard for many people to hear that the core teachings of Jesus are really not to be found in the creeds of the church, but they're to be found in the teachings of Jesus himself. Not in what the church has said about Jesus, but in what Jesus himself says. Now, my brother and colleague, Matt Russell, some of you know Matt, has been trying to get me for some long time now to read the works of Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams is a former Archbishop of Canterbury. And I have put off doing this because I have more books on my to-read shelf than I will get to in my lifetime. But what I have learned about Rowan Williams is that he reads three languages, speaks nine. His honors are a foot long. He's written 50 books. You can read about him on Wikipedia if you're interested. He is a uh, man who held the Church of England together during a time when it was being split over various fractions of female priests and the issue of homosexuality and, and a variety of other things. So I had taken a little book of Rowan Williams to read on this trip called Tokens of Faith which is his, his way of introducing people to the Christian faith. And having never read anything by Rowan Williams and knowing that our guide, Peter Sills, was a former canon in the Church of England, canon of Ely Cathedral, I asked Sills what his experience of Rowan Williams was. And he was just as high on him as Matt Russell is. And he said, before you read anything, read his little book called Writing in the Dust. Rowan Williams was in New York City, very near the towers, the Twin Towers, when 9-11 occurred. He was getting ready to convene an ecumenical meeting, which, of course, never happened. And uh, the, the title of the book comes from the fact that um, immediately and for days after 9-11, for a huge area around that place... You could literally write in the dust from the fire of the, the, the debris of the bodies and the buildings that, that had been burned there. And uh, I downloaded that book, put it on my Kindle, and read it in two days. And the question around which this brief book revolves is, what are we prepared to learn? You know, almost 3,000 people died immediately in the attacks of 9-11. No, no telling how many people have died since 9-11 as a result of the bombings of 9-11. And although there are other countries, particularly in South America, that have a higher per capita gun death rate than we do, we can boast that last year, 40,000 people died of gun deaths in the United States in one year. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the statistics. I'm sick of hearing about it. I'm sure you are too. 
I am concerned about our culture where the most powerful voices seem to me to be more concerned about protecting guns than protecting people. And I am fearful that if we cannot own up to the shadow side of our very violent nature, we are planting more seeds for future violence. So what better context could we have than right now to learn not only from what our culture could or would teach us, but also what it might mean to allow our lives to be shaped by the person and the teachings of Jesus. What are we prepared to learn? Now, what's the context? I have been using the questions Jesus asked as a basis for the teachings I'm offering in here, and this is risky because the very word Jesus stirs up things for people. Sometimes people hear the word Jesus and they turn off immediately because they've gotten so much bad stuff in the past. Um, sometimes people hear the word Jesus and they're curious or they're open. Jesus was a Jew. Central to his teaching was his understanding of God. And many people today, indeed the loudest voices coming from the Christian church today, are not nearly so interested in what I refer to as the Jesus of history or the original Jesus as they are in assuring that their beliefs about Jesus, their particular denomination or church's teachings about Jesus, do not get disturbed. Someone like me has to spend way too much time trying to state what kind of Christian I'm not. In our time, Christianity has come to be identified with a conservative social political agenda that is fueled by a religion of anger, suspicion, fear, judgment, all in the name of God, which I think is a shame and a disgrace and a scandal to the Christian faith. So let's be clear. Words have power. Whether we want to hear them or read them, or not, we live in a culture where words that denigrate and degrade people are used a lot. One of the first things I learned into my early journey into Buddhism has to do with the power of words. One of the major eightfold steps on the, uh, on the, one of the major steps on the eightfold path has to do with what the Buddhists call conscious speech. Words can heal, words can hurt. So I learned this aphoristic saying, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. You can add that to your daily practice. Hateful words are filling our airways. But they're not coming from hateful people. They're coming from frightened people. They're coming from people who believe that what they have fought for, what they have believed, what they've nurtured, what they've protected, is about to be taken away from them. And this is the reason I want to take a while to look at, from a variety of directions, a question 
that Jesus asked in a variety of ways throughout his ministry. And that question was, why are you so frightened? Now, one of the things that's frightening a lot of people is change. But life is to be lived. Life is not to be controlled. Over and over, Jesus said in countless ways that what he called the rule of God was not, could not be under our control. You know, we humans are funny. We uh, dreamed up this thing we call permanence. And then we believed that there was actually such a thing. And then we drive ourselves crazy in all sorts of ways because the cosmos does not abide by our vain wishes and false illusions about permanence. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Perhaps that's one of the reasons fundamentalists hate evolution. Because evolution is nothing but change. Most of us including your teacher, do not like and have difficulty embracing one of the primary teachings of Jesus, which is you gain by letting go. You gain by losing. And we are losers. You know that. We're going to lose everything, everyone, our health, our life, our, you know that. Just a joyful thought. So I am assuming that you know the legend of the Buddha. It's a legend. Um, just like much of the story of Jesus is a parable or, or, or a metaphor, the story of the Buddha is a legend. But it's a great, it's a great legend. The Buddha, uh, Siddhartha, grew up in a palace. And his father was protecting him, grooming him to take his place as a king when his father went on. So he wanted his son not to have any suffering whatsoever. And he, he protected him. He gave him everything he wanted, all the women he wanted, all the wine he wanted, all the, hey, he just gave him everything. And, and one day this rascal got out and, and on his wanderings about, he saw four things. And, and these four things were that he saw a dead body he saw an old person, he saw a sick person, and he saw a renunciate or somebody who was practicing uh, the Hindu religion. And, and, he, he, and he saw those first three things and he said to himself, this is not good. There's got to be a way around this so that people don't have to suffer and die and grow old, and I'm going to find it. So he set out to do just that, and he tried years and years of harsh practices, and nothing worked. And he said, you know, before throwing in the towel, I am going to go sit under that tree, and I am not going to move until I have reached enlightenment about this and found freedom from suffering. That's what he said. And so he went and sat under the Bodhi tree for 49 days. Didn't move according to the legend. 
And he had all these temptations and all these things that came up from Mara and everything happened. And or you should see the movie. It's just, it's great. <laughs> and um, at the end of that 49-day period of time, he had reached enlightenment. Some people call it in the, in the in the Zen tradition Nirvana, and and he wanted to share his enlightenment with his followers, and so he put out the word that he was going to give a sermon about enlightenment. He gave a sermon at a place called Deer Park, not the one that's close to us, <laughs> not be good place. And the legend has it that fifteen hundred people came to hear the Buddha give his legend. 1,500 people came. And here is his first sermon in its entirety. Like you, some people began to get restless. And one guy turned to one and said, you know, I think he's lost his mind. And another said, no, 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 he's trying to tell us something. Uh, just too profound for us to get. I'm trying to, i got to work at this really hard. Now, eventually in his lifetime, the Buddha said much. He died in his 80s. He wasn't crucified like Jesus. He said a lot. And it might or might not surprise you to know that the Buddhist scholars are having debates about what, what Buddha said, about whether these are authentic sayings of Buddha or not. Just like Christian scholars are having debates about whether Jesus really said this or not. It's really quite a debate in the Buddhist journals that I take. This is a sermon. This is a teaching. Now, I think, based on years of study, that Jesus and Buddha had a lot in common. Jesus didn't say much. But he, Jesus gave a sermon very much like this. And in it, he put a question. Here's what Jesus said. Walk into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They don't fuss with their appearance. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the wildflowers, most of which never will be seen, don't you think God will attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to get you to do here is just relax, not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God in the way God works fuss over these things, but you know God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. God wants to give you the very kingdom itself. Be generous. Give to the poor. Get yourselves a bank that can't go bankrupt. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Why are you anxious? So when Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, see how they grow. 
He was asking his audience to pay attention to whatever was right in front of them. The first most important element of spiritual practice is being here, not somewhere else. And it is the most difficult thing that we do. I have a cartoon. I have a lot of cartoons. But uh, I have a cartoon that shows somebody climbing up to see the guru up the mountain to see the guru. And, and uh, behind the guru, you can see what looks like a, a restaurant with tables and set and people enjoying them. And the guru is saying to the one who's just arrived, I can't seat you until you are fully present. <laughs> now, just like with Buddha's first sermon, most people don't get this teaching that, it, that is in Matthew, Luke, Mark, and the Gospel of Thomas one of the most authentic sayings that Jesus ever offered because we're too busy arguing about it. Whether it makes sense, whether it's practical, whether it really fits in the real world or not. You've got to be practical, you know. We're worrying about its deeper meaning, speculating about what it could mean. Anything but being in the present moment. Now, Jesus' disciples added words to his teaching, but like the Buddha and others, the real lesson was not one given in the way that we are used to receiving lessons, like this. Jesus simply said, I think this is a teaching that addresses one of our most basic human problems, our sense of insecurity, our existential anxiety. Our society is preoccupied with anxiety and fear, and the noise generated by these anxieties and fears keep us from seeing that it is not in our ultimate best interest not to love and respect one another. It is not in our ultimate best interest to participate in division and demonizing. One of the reasons I call this gathering ordinary life is because ordinariness is one of the prime elements of authentic spirituality. Jesus never said, hey, everybody watch, I'm going to show you something powerful. He simply pointed to a flower and said, look at that. Or he said, look at the birds of the air. Christian fundamentalism absolutely misses this by insisting on the literal nature of the miracles, which contradicts the original spirit of the teachings of Jesus. In asking the question, why are you afraid, consider the lilies of the field, he didn't say, make an idol out of the words I just said. It's a key point. He said, consider the flower, not my words. Because all the words we use when we talk about the connecting spirit must respect the mystery and never idolatrously take sacred mysteries place. You know, if we could write down all that we do not know about what we call God, which, of course, we can't do. But if we could write down all that we don't know, 
What we could write would stand as an encyclopedia to the pamphlet of what we do know. And if anything, the insights coming to us from the world of physics teaches us, it's this. I find it so ironic, it would be comical if it didn't lead to such disastrous consequences, that each of the religions that claims belief in God, that would be Judaism, Islam, Christianity, teaches that God is incomp incomprehensible. Christianity teaches that. Judaism teaches that. Islam teaches that. God is always more than anyone can know or say. Always. And then some aspects of those religions, the fundamentalist aspects, go on to claim that they know so much about God that the only way one can have access to God is through their particular re religion and their particular understanding of their particular religion. There's only one container and we own it. That's idolatry. Seeing the flower, paying attention to the birds of the air, these are metaphors, you understand. It's not easy. Richard Rohr says that there are two primary things that take us to a new, different level of perception, which is what we're going to talk about next week. One is a great tragedy. Your doctor tells you that you have six months to live, or your child has six months to live or somebody you love very much just got killed in a car wreck, or whatever. That's one way. And the other way is to have a consistent, significant, daily spiritual practice. And no other ways. So we were, we were staying in a cabin on the north rim of the Grand Canyon years ago, and um, we're in the process of falling in love with that place. Marvelous geological wonder. And that love affair um, was something that would eventually lead us to raft the Grand Canyon in its entirety three different times. And on this particular morning, we got up very early. It was well before sunrise. It wasn't exactly dark because when we went outside, the sky was filled with millions of stars. Now, you can't take a photograph of this any more than you can take a photograph of a fireworks display. I see people at fireworks taking pictures of fireworks. And I'm always disappointed to see whether they could come out. They never look like what you saw, right? And then, so this photograph is not what we saw, but it's representative. So. When we got back from this experience, I was telling a buddy of mine about what it was like to be in the Grand Canyon from one of our rafting trips, looking up, seeing the stars at night. It's just incredible. And he quoted to me from memory some words by Rachel Carlson about that experience when she had had it. And this is what she wrote. If this were a site that could be seen only once in a century, or only once in a human generation, throngs of spectators would gather. But since it can be seen many scores of nights in any year, people give not a thought to the beauty overhead. And because they could see it almost any night, perhaps they never will. Because we can't see it because of all the light pollution in our town. A profound spiritual metaphor there. Stars are always available to us, 
but we can only see them in the dark. We live in a dark time. Can we learn to see? So we dressed, we made our way to the place suggested to us earlier. We checked it out the afternoon before. And so we walked from our cabin to this place. There were already a few other people who were gathered there. It was quieter than any church I've ever been in when I wasn't in church by myself. And it was cold, even though it was summertime. And we waited. In Buddhism, they talk about being enlightened. In Christianity, we talk about the hope and power of resurrection, something that dawns on us. You know, resurrection didn't take place at 5 o'clock happy hour. Early in the morning, daybreak. I've told it before, but it fits here. The student goes to the teacher and says, is there anything I can learn to become enlightened? And the teacher says, no, no more than there's anything you can do to make the sun come up in the morning. Then why, complains the student, are you asking me to do all these difficult spiritual practices so you will be awake when the sun comes up? Now, this experience of new light is a two-edged sword. If you've been in the dark groping, frightened, the light can be a welcome relief. It can be good news. One well-worn Zen teaching is about a man living in a mostly darkened room, frightened and paralyzed because of the coil snake he sees over in the corner of the room. He's terrified to make a move. And then someone comes in with a torch, a light, and, and he sees the snake as nothing more than an old piece of rope that has been tossed carelessly in the corner. But the light can also be devastating because it can reveal the ways we contribute to and are complicit in our own destruction. Every addict is blind to his or her addiction until something breaks through the wall of their denial, until they have had enough, until life doesn't work for them anymore. No one wakes up any day of their life and says, you know, I think I want to be an addict. Doesn't happen that way. No one says, I want a life and a lifestyle that will destroy me and those I love. No one says that. But it happens. And societies can develop addictions too. What will it take for us as a culture to step into the light or to allow the, the light, the dawn of a new day, to come upon us Surely we've had enough. Can we commit to the practices? For 18 years now, I have devoted my study and teaching life to Jesus. I've wanted to know who Jesus was, the history of Jesus. I've wanted to know what he taught. I wanted to know what Jesus taught rather than what was taught about him. And I'm giving the date as 18 years because... I started this intensely right after 9-11 where the evils of fundamentalism were so clear to me. Now, it may or may not surprise you to know that immediately after I started teaching that in this space, I got a lot of negative responses. People left the church. I got even hateful 
responses. These came from people who claimed they were defending Jesus in the Bible. During this time, my personal love for Jesus and his teachings has grown anonymously. I grew up in a tradition that taught me a couple things. One, not to know Jesus, but to know about him. And second, to be afraid of Jesus. Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night and get you. If you didn't grow up in that tradition, thank God. Every day now for years, I've begun my day praying a prayer that I have uh, offered to you. And I look at this icon when I offer it. It's the first prayer that I offer every day. And it's uh, Jesus with me, Jesus within me, Jesus behind me, Jesus before me, Jesus beside me, Jesus to win me, Jesus to comfort and restore me, Jesus beneath me, Jesus above me. Jesus in quiet, Jesus in danger, Jesus in hearts of all who love me, Jesus in the mouth of friend and stranger. Richard Rohr says that being a Christian is learning to see Christ in everyone and in everything. Ain't nothing in our culture that supports this. That's quite a statement what Roar is making. Being a Christian. Now, Christ means something different for Roar than Jesus. Christ is the, from the beginning to now, forever, the eternal Christ. You know, the Jesus narratives are full of the metaphor of blindness being healed, people not being able to see, having eyes and not uses them. Resurrection dawns and people usually have a hard time seeing it or believing it. Oh, it couldn't happen. That's not true. Resurrection is a symbol for looking at things and persons in the world as places and people where the divine presence is. There's no place where God is not. No one in whom God is not. Jesus is the light by which we see we see the world and the people in a new way because we see through him. We see using his eyes. So having faith in Jesus doesn't mean getting a ticket to heaven when you die. But it's allowing our way of relating to the world to be transformed by our relationship to the teachings and character of Jesus. This means that we come to think of Jesus not as someone outside of us, but as the power in us to set us free to see the world with clarity and hope. Now, this definition of roars is risky. It's work. Uh, it involves not treating anyone as dispensable. It involves acting on the assumption that everyone, even that jerk at the office, is loved by God. There are no surplus people, no people whose needs we can ignore. Believing in Jesus can have no room for the belief that the rights of some human beings simply overrule the needs of others. Now, my definition of what it means to be Christian is slightly different from yours. My definition, um, and maybe I thunked it up because it lets me a little bit more off the hook, 
My definition is uh, to be a Christian is to have a relation, an ongoing, growing relationship with the God of Jesus, with the faith that that relationship will not leave me unchanged. And you have to keep checking to see whether you're growing or not in that definition. And just like any relationship with anyone we love and care for or won't care from, we have to nurture that relationship. And, and what we're learning from the new cosmology is that this God of Jesus isn't out there. God's right here. God's right now. God's in these words. God's in your hearing. God's in this space. God's in everything that is and everyone who are. All that is. All who are. And most especially in those places and people where we have the most difficulty in seeing the sacred. In the homeless the immigrant, the different, in the deaths we experience, in the things we can't control. We need a moral and religious awakening in our culture. And what opens us up for that is a recognition of and admission to the fact that we are often not only in the dark, but we are contributors to it. So ours is a time of lamenting, the great book in the Bible called Lamentations. Ours is a time for lamenting and a time of confessing. In my reading of Archbishop Rowan Williams, I read a piece where he makes a scene from the Jesus narrative very contemporary. Now, it is in the nature of the biblical story to be made contemporary. We're to bring things like the story of the so-called Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the story of the laborers who worked for just a few minutes but got paid as much as those who worked all day. We're to bring those into our lives and find ourselves in them and the meaning they have for us. So, Rowan Williams, now these are my words, but the idea I, I got from him. Rowan Williams brings the story of Peter on the night of the crucifixion into the present moment. You know this story, even if you never have been to church. Jesus is in our culture in the popular ways that he makes it on Christmas and Easter stories on PBS and other things. So you know the story. This is Rembrandt's picture of that story. Jesus is going through the various mock trials Pilate and Herod and their minions have cooked up. And Peter wants to be with Jesus, but he just can't do it. I can't blame him. So instead of being with Jesus, he's in a courtyard outside warming himself by a charcoal fire. And three different times, someone comes up to him and says, hey, I know you. You're that Jesus fellow. You're with that Jesus fellow, aren't you? And Peter says, I don't know the man. I see that in my life. You have to say for yourself. But after years of giving my life to the study of Jesus and his teachings, there are so many times and places where I see myself saying, I don't know him. I never did. I didn't know that this would lead to a lynch mob or having to have dinner with a prostitute or a leper. I didn't realize what he meant when he said it would cost me everything. I didn't anticipate that it would call me to ask one of my real homophobic friends 
Do you actually know and love a gay person? I didn't know I'd have to do that. No, I don't know the man. I did not know he was really serious when he said, love your enemies. Welcome the stranger. Just telling you, I'm more comfortable with a God who leads me beside the still waters, who restores my soul, not the one who expects me to go through the valley of the shadow of death. No, I don't know the man. I really thought that he was going to give me certainty in a world of solved problems. I didn't know I would be required to speak out against white supremacy, racism, and obvious injustice. That will expose me to criticism and danger. No, I don't know the man. I mean, I try to be generous, tolerant. I mean, I really do deplore prejudice and discrimination, but I'm not of that group. You've got to understand that. I can't be held responsible for their suffering. Did I deceive myself when I thought, when I said that I wanted more, that I really wanted what he had to offer? Perhaps I wanted to want that, but I didn't realize what it would cost. No, I don't know the man. However, there is that most theological word, the word however, However, if I don't know him, I don't know myself. And further, I shall not know who I am until I know whether I actually dare follow him or not. Why are we afraid? Consider the lilies of the field. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you.